Hi, George. Hey, Mike. Hey, um, Phil Crass Survival Podcast. I had uh, Chad on the podcast today. Uh, Chad Robichaud. Hey, guys, if you don't know who Chad Robichaud is, you should. Chad's a former Marine, um, former JSOC guy, um, former professional fighter, author, and advocate for his nonprofit that he works with, Mighty Oaks. Um, Mighty Oaks is a nonprofit that helps with people suffering from PTSD, and they provide resources, training, mentorship. They have four ranches that are strategically located throughout the United States, and their ultimate mission and objective is to stop veteran suicide. And uh, it was a great podcast, man. I wish you were there, but you were busy being sick. Yeah, I didn't want to like cough a lot. I just, you know, it was been kind of dumb for me to be coughing every five seconds. And I took some medicine, down some water, so hopefully I feel better. Well, I went through that recently, and it sucks. Uh, it's really terrible. Um, hey, this podcast is sponsored by True Bane. If you guys are following everything that we got going on, especially my personal lifestyle, you know that I'm a keto guy. I do the keto diet. The keto diet is basically a diet. I don't even like to call it a diet. It should be a lifestyle that kind of replicates feast and famine. And I combine the keto diet with intermittent fasting. I do about 16 hours a day. So typically 14 to 16 hours intermittent fasting. And then I don't eat more than 50 grams of carbohydrates a day and absolutely no sugar. And it gets me in a ketosis state. It increases the, the number of ketones in my blood. And then my body likes to leverage energy from triglycerides and fat. And so healthy fats, saturated fats and polymonosaturated fats are in my window. Uh, avocados, eggs, um, not too much protein because you don't want to abuse the protein cycle because that can convert into glycogen. But part of that diet to sustain that I use ketone esters from True Brain. True Brain is not T R U E, but it's T R U Brain.com. Check out TrueBrain.com and check out their ketone ester. If you guys are interested in saving 15%, um, please use Philcraft 15, Philcraft 15 on TrueBrain.com to save 15% on your next purchase. Uh, I do it every morning. Look, with my coffee, it, it uses. Uh, What's the sugar? I always mess that up. I always say a lester or something weird, but it's uh, a, a stati- sativa. Yeah, or stevia. 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 <laughs> sativa. <laughs> oh man, you're so sick. You need to get some of that some of that ketone ester, but stevia, and then uh, it amps up your uh, ketone levels and gets you in that window, which improves cognitive function. And for me, overall function. I mean, I just I like focusing and uh, being on the keto because when I'm on the keto, I'm thinking clearly and I'm not craving food all the time like you get when you're yeah. And you're not worried about eating like you're not like that's not main focus on your on your mind, especially when you're doing keto. I've I've learned that once you get it on keto after a couple weeks and you get all the bad stuff out and the good stuff comes coming in, you kind of you're not worried about when you eat. You know what I mean? You're not like, oh, I got to plan my meal out or, oh, I got to do this. It's kind of like, all right, I'm hungry now. I'm going to make some eggs, some spinach, some steak, mm-hmm. and eat that up real quick. It's not like a, 
it's like for me, I like not eating in the mornings. I don't have like a stomach yeah. for it. Like my stomach's upset. Well, once you adapt to that too, you're right. It's like convenient. Yeah. I mean, one, when you remove glycogen and sugars from your body, you don't crave it. And so you're not going through this vicious cycle. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to operate and not worry about chow and your body just run optimally or, or optimized is good. And yeah. the biggest mistake people make is they don't, they don't keep their uh, electrolyte levels up. So they don't keep their potassium, their salts. Look, you need magnesium, potassium, and your salts. I take a potassium supplement in the morning. And then uh, if I'm hurting, uh, when I eat lunch, for example, I throw some Himalayan pink salt on my uh, chow in order to keep my sodium levels up because, uh, yeah, you will compromise that. And a lot of people mistake ketosis or no, they actually mistake being dehydrated um, and as being glycogen depleted. And that's not the case. You, your body has plenty of glycogen and you're not, your blood sugar is not dropping out. Yeah. And then, and if you have the extra money, buy one of those little blood tester kits. I mean, it gives you all your levels. It will come with your keto level and the keto your, mojo, right? Yeah. Yes. Keto mojo. And it will come with your, your glucose uh, strips as well. So yeah. Another thing is there's so much information out there. I mean, before you start any, you know, diet or whatever, buy some, buy a book, buy a magazine, and it will show you step by step what to do. It's not like, I know when people like, they get overwhelmed about like a new diet, like, oh shit, keto. I'm, I have to be like, I had to make six figures to be on that diet because it, it's probably all these special things. And it's really it's not, not special it's at all. It's the simplest things you can eat. Yeah. You're just Whole cutting foods. out the, cutting out the, the bad, the, the sugars. That's what kills me is sugar. So it's just a good way to eat. Like I feel cleaner. You feel like your head is, um, your head is clear. Your mind, your mind set is clear. I mean, I don't know. I just, I don't get tired on it. I function a lot better in it. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. The first two weeks to the month, was it was terrible like you really gonna like um you're gonna have some discipline for this for this diet but once you get in the flow it's it's easy it's just a it becomes part of your routine and that's it march 1st we're having the fuji mats in the house and you're gonna help i'll probably be out of town but you'll be building up the mats for march yeah. night where are you at uh i might be out of town i have to talk to you about it but march oh, okay. march 9th raul martinez um, and professional former ufc Fighter Jim Miller being in the house. He he shared it on his uh on Shut his up, highlight. He? Yeah, he did. His story highlight. Yeah, he posted the course. Yep, he did. I was going to ask you today to ask if he could. Do yeah, that. I saw it this morning when I came to work. Dang, thanks, Jim. No yeah. big deal. Um, but he'll be in the house. He'll be assisting uh, Raul for the uh, Saturday course, which is close proximity combatives. We just call it combatives uh, level one, and then uh, he'll be with us. We'll be doing a podcast that probably afternoon, and then on Sunday. In Chino Valley, if you're interested, we got Carbine Gunfighter, and he'll be there as well. Um, super great podcast with Chad today. I'm excited to get more involved. He's a third degree black belt, and then, uh, once these mats are here, I'm going to try to talk him into coming into them. Get some like private dojo. sessions or something. I know something. Well, what's cool is uh, we have we me and George are going to figure it out, but I'm we actually might do open gym or open mats uh, a couple times a week and. Uh, have guys or gals that are interested in rolling and doing functional fitness show up at the shop. We'll have a nice window opened up for those guys. Um, dude, these Phil Krause Survival, the, the hats that are sitting in front of me. So we got the oh, new heart leather sent in, the new Phil Krause Survival Woodland Caps. And it is, I haven't even put it on my head, and it's my favorite hat, 100%. If you're interested, by the time you hear this <coughs> podcast, it'll be 
um, up on the website. It's Woodland Camo Black with our Phil Craft Survival logo in leather. Designed by George Bell. No big deal. No big deal. Customized and um, tool, hand-tooled by Heart Leather. Um, yeah, check that, check that out on the website. Anyways, time to kick it off. George, you got anything? No, I have nothing. Let's go. All right, let's kick it off. Thanks, guys. Chad, thanks for coming out on the podcast, man. I know you're a busy, man. No, man, absolutely. I appreciate you coming out. If you guys are just tuning in on YouTube live, Chad Robichaud, I just found out from a buddy of mine, Grant, an old Ranger Regiment guy, and he let me know that Chad was in town. And uh, once I found that out and then confirmed it through his buddy, I know I had to reach out to you and, and uh, hear your story. I had already known about you and kind of the things that you were doing. And um, before we get, you know, kick it off into Q&A sessions and stuff, um, why don't you tell people who you are and like kind of where you come from and, and yeah. what you have going on right now? Yeah, well, my name is Chad Robichaux, and I'm a, a former force reconnaissance Marine who uh, had the opportunity to serve on a, a JSOC task force over in Afghanistan and other parts of the region. And, uh, you know, came home and struggled like many of our warriors coming home after, uh, now. I did eight, deployment, eight deployments and, and uh, you know, fell on my face pretty hard. And on the other side of that, I realized that, you know, I wasn't the only one that, that was uh, dealing with some of the things that I dealt with. And so we started a nonprofit called Mighty Oaks Foundation. And uh, it's just been pretty amazing. Uh, we do resiliency uh, events for active duty. So far, we've reached about 100,000 active duty troops at uh, commands, different commands around the world. And uh, we run a program called a Legacy Program, which is a, a one-week intensive for combat trauma. And we take active duty veterans and spouses. And uh, to date, we've uh, served over uh, about 2,400 graduates from that program. And probably one of the highest success rates for eradicating veteran suicides uh, in, in that space. Um, we do 30 of those programs a year, and again, people come on military orders to the program, and people come from the veteran community. It's all free, including travel. We pay for everything. And uh, so it's just been an uh, incredible opportunity for me to continue to serve and uh, and do what I love to do is you know, lock arms with our fellow warriors and just you know, accomplish the mission. And the mission that, that I'm tied into right now is eradicating veteran suicide, uh, dealing with helping people move forward beyond a diagnosis of PTSD and actually rise back up to be uh, warriors and leaders that we know they are, do important things again in the next chapter of life. What, what, are some of the, what are some of the indicators for you that you were having some issues? Like, was it was it like one moment or one instance where it kind of affected you or was it like a culmination of a lot of things that were happening? Yeah, it was a culmination of a lot of things. Uh, you know, if you had talked to me before, you know, started having problems and you would ex describe to me like someone that was dealing with PTSD or some of the symptoms I would have, I would have thought, no way. Like I would never have faced this. In fact, I would have thought you were describing someone that was weak. You know, I, that's the mindset I had, the mentality I had. And so for me to it's very strange for me to be in this space right now because it's kind of a complete 180 contrast to who I was before uh, because I didn't witness it firsthand. You know, I didn't, when people had problems, I'm like, oh, that guy just went crazy or that guy just, he fell apart. He's weak. He can't handle this job. And, uh, and for me, these, it was a slow roll of these symptoms. It first started with just being almost out of control, angry, like uh, in Afghanistan, just very like high level of intensity. Mm -hmm. And uh, that in level of intensity started turning into these symptoms of anxiety that I would definitely take home to my family. And, uh, you know, my, my home was not a very happy place for my wife and kids at that time. Um, having to deal with me being that intense all the time. And eventually it manifested into these, uh, physiological symptoms of what we know to, to be post-traumatic stress. Uh, you know, I, I started having, uh, these symptoms, my arms would go numb and if my cheeks and my face would go numb and I feel like my throat was swelling shut and I would just try to shove that down. Cause I would, you know, and, and I've never been a drinker, but one time I stopped in Dubai and, 
And I'm like, you know, at the hotel, the hotel, went to the hotel uh, bar to slam some liquor thinking that would help. And it just made it worse. So I'm thankful for that because I probably I've got a pretty extreme personality. So I probably would have became alcoholic trying to deal with it. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, these symptoms start to manifest, get worse and worse and worse. And it became the, these moments where I felt like my body would just shut down. Like I felt like my, my heart was going to stop at any moment. And uh, almost started having these out-of-body kind of experiences and um, these blackouts of memory. And I was on this, um, my very last uh, deployment. And um, some things that happened, we had uh, we had several team members, uh, Afghan, Afghan uh, local nationals that were assigned to me. And uh, they were they were captured, uh, probably tortured for an extended period of time and killed. These are these are 10 guys that I worked very closely this with. These are your brothers, yeah. These are my brothers, yeah. yeah. These are guys that would have I would have died for, that would have died for me. I know a lot of people in the military may not understand that, but these, I mean, I lived in these guys' homes. I played soccer with their kids. Their wives cooked me dinner, like... These are my friends, and um, and uh, and you know at that point, uh, these guys uh, haven't gone through that. Through that, there was probably a compromise in our operation, and based on the way I was working, and I had to make a decision to push forward and continue to operate. And I think that pushed things over the edge for me. I started losing like memory of. of I'm almost like, would come out of a fog occasionally and realize that I had been working in this fog, and I and I came to this point where I realized that. I wouldn't only put myself in danger, but I was putting other people in danger. And so I had to raise my hand and, and say something. And when I did, I was brought home and uh, put before a, a clinical psychologist and I was diagnosed with, with post-traumatic stress. And uh, and I was read out of my program, which for me was uh, probably the most uh, shameful thing that could have happened to me at the time because I believed that I was doing the most important job in the war on terror. Maybe that's a little arrogant, but for me, I believed that I was doing the yeah, most important yeah. thing that I could have been doing with my life. And I was like, if I was like, you know, played football, which I'm five foot three, so I probably never played professional football. But yeah. you know, if I was, it was like my Super Bowl. Like I was in the Super Bowl doing what I trained my whole life to do, and and having given this opportunity because you know you've been around for a long time. It's getting to be part of an operation like that is like a lot of it's timing. It's not about yourself. It's timing and opportunity. And I had that timing and opportunity, and I was getting to play in the Super Bowl, yeah. and I was pulled out there in halftime, and it, and it crushed me. And so on top of the physiological effects of post-traumatic stress that I was dealing with, I was completely ashamed. I felt yeah. like I failed people, people on my team that I looked up to that I admired even, even kind of suggested that I failed. And, uh, and, and I was like, man, I, I just felt like I let everyone down and I was ashamed and I didn't know what to do next. And, uh, and it put me in a really dark place and for a period of about three years that ended and then, um, you know, me almost getting divorced from my family and uh, almost me, me almost taking my life. And, uh, you know, it was a, so to answer your question, it wasn't one moment, you know, yeah. I, I had plenty of one moments. I had, you know, one of my best friends, Foster Harrington, who I served with for 10 years, who was killed, you know, killed, uh, after, uh, securing H- HVT, uh, and he was shot, uh, through a single, uh, single sniper round through his head and, and killed. And, um, you know, that was pretty devastating. Um, there was probably plenty of incidents where I almost died. That could have been a traumatic event and having those guys die. But I, I believe for me it was cumulative. It was over time. It was just a building, building, building over time that just that started to erode me. Yeah. And uh, if I could put a single moment on when that I flipped over that edge, it would have been the moment that I think I became scared. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of the things I did, I look back now and I'm like, oh my gosh, that was insane. Why would I even put myself yeah, in those yeah. positions? But at the time that seemed confident in my skills, my team, my, my abilities, the, my training. And I did operations that I felt uh, comfortable doing. And, uh, but there was a moment in time that where I actually, um, became fearful. I started, uh, writing letters to my family, like in little sticky notes. And I put them in the lid of my suitcase. Cause I figured my personal effects would make it home. Mm-hmm. They were goodbye letters, like to my son that he could, 
you know, he'd be the man of the house now and the wife kind of a permission to move on, uh, and live her life. And I'd, you know, go on operation. I come back, I take those letters, throw them away. And, uh, and so no one would find them, especially my family. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I know now that was the Im- like an imminent sense of doom. And when yeah. that fear kind of crept in on me, uh, I think I, I lost the ability to function and do my job well. And that ended up leading to me to the position where I realized, again, I wouldn't just put myself in danger, but put other people in danger as well. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I just talked about this recently on social media. And I'm pretty open and vocal about it. Um, but I had a panic attack on an on a aircraft last year. And, you know, I'm a free fall jump master. I'm advanced free fall qualified. I've been to probably every canopy control class or course there is. And um, I'm fearless in an aircraft, or so I thought. And a lot of the the stressors and trauma that we carry, we suppress. And, you know, physiologically, our endocrine systems are just jacked up. And so our sympathetic nervous system fires when it wants to sometimes. And just, you know, cognition and, you know, whether it's, ethical, moral, or just behavioral. And when you start thinking about things like, Hey, my buddy just got killed. It could potentially happen to me and your values change, right? Your, your, uh, priorities change your hierarchy of your values change. And so when we were young, we had nothing to lose. I mean, it's like, Hey, you go for broke, you know? And then you get to a point where you realize, Hey, you have your family and then you had those close friends and then you lost them. And now it's becoming more real because you have more to lose and you don't want sure. to sacrifice uh, that life that you see. And you start thinking about that. Is that, is that what was happening? You started thinking about what, what the potential of what, what could happen? Yeah. I mean, um, you see, you see things happen and then, um, and then you start, I think, I don't, I don't know if it's just a amount of experience. You get more experience to see more things happen. And, I, and I don't say this is like, arrogantly or anything i never really had the fear of being killed like i had the fear of being uh captured abducted mm-hmm. and uh you know sitting in the basement of a you know isi pakistan prison getting you know skin peeled off my body my feet smashed with sledgehammers like those are the yeah. kind of things that was going through my mind like when i closed try to close my eyes at night and and uh so i had this very you know these start having these very vivid dreams and and becoming just overwhelmed by them. Yeah. And, uh, and again, it impeded my ability to do my job. And it's funny you mentioned the, the airplane because the first place I had a, a panic attack, I was on a, I was, I was on a layover in Beijing, China, mm-hmm. uh, going, you know, going into an operation. And as, as the board, as the plane was starting to board again, I started having this ability to like where I feel like my chest was closing shut. I couldn't breathe. And I, mm-hmm. it was, it wasn't a fear of like crashing an airplane and dying. It was yeah. a fear of like, I can't get out of this fuselage. 100%, yeah. And I, I actually asked to get off the plane and they wouldn't let me because of the you know, whole bird flu thing. And, yep. and I was like, there's no way I'm having a panic attack. Like maybe I'm allergic to the spray because they sprayed the plane for bird flu. Yeah. Like there's something else. Maybe it's something I ate in Japan. Like I'm, I'm sick. Like I'm not having a panic attack. I was trying to convince myself. But when that plane got in the sky, man, I, I couldn't breathe. I just wanted to, I wanted to tear open the door of that plane to get out of it. Yeah. And several times since I've been in an airplane and, and again, you know, I'm a free fall jumper. I've been in, airplanes a lot uh yeah. jammed up with gear you know shoulder to shoulder and never had that issue before you know uh you know combat diving and in small places and never had a claustrophobic feeling before but uh you know since that first panic attack i've really had trouble flying and i fly and still to this day i have to, sometimes i have to you know just i have ways now that i've learned to calm myself mm-hmm. down and, and ground myself but when i didn't have that man it, it was overwhelming and it yeah. sounds crazy to people like us that would you know have done the things we've done to be scared to fly an airplane and uh, i mean again it's not scared of fear of crashing or dying it's a fear yeah. of like not having that control yeah i, I was going to say uh, for me just you know doing my own uh, due diligence and trying to figure out 
what was going on. I think it was a, a, a lack of control because you know free your free fall JM and your and your JM and your guys, you kind of coordinate and work that bird. You have direct yeah. court, uh, communication with the pilot. The ramp goes down. You could bail out. Hell, you even practice bail out drills. Sure. And so you have total control. And then I remember that feeling too. And it was a horrible feeling because you're so helpless. It's like, it's weird is it, the surge of adrenaline that I had, and I call it like it was an adrenaline ride. I was on that ride for 15 minutes, 20 minutes until we leveled out and I could undo my seatbelt. But I remember the sense of, uh, of fear that I couldn't do anything about my situation. Right. And that was, that's what was driving me crazy the most is that I just couldn't get out of this situation. And I, you know, I was going to do stem cell therapy in the Bahamas a few weeks ago, and I actually went down to the airport, uh, checked my ticket in, and started walking towards the aircraft, and I had that sense again. And so I refused to get on the bird. I actually turned around and said, no, I'm going back home because I don't want to be a flight risk. I don't want to compromise security on that plane because um, of something that I can't control. And so I backed off, but you know, now I'm looking for help. In fact, I got a VA appointment today about it, but whether it's uh, beta blockers or, you know, talking to the VA and to figure out a, a resource for that, but it's never happened. I yeah. mean, I'm, I'm probably four years removed from the military, you know, two years from the reserve component and two years from contracting and never up until this point have I dealt with such significant issues, but I, I only imagine that it's a, it's a culmination of like plaque, you know, that's, that's accumulated over a period of time. And it's only going to progressively get worse without understanding what's happening, getting educated, and then having a resource for that. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I remember like having a diagnosis and a uh, post-traumatic stress and wanting the answers to a lot of these things. And uh, the psychologist I had at the time, maybe he had the answers. Maybe I just wasn't listening, but he was never able to explain to me what was going on in my mind. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so, you know, fast forward three years later when I'm getting well. I wanted to know those answers. And I set out on a quest to, to, to understand what was happening. And really uh, that's where one of the books we wrote, the truth about PTSD is understanding what happens in your brain, the limbic system and, and how your limbic yep. system is triggered. And, uh, and the fact that, you know, this word that, you know, not, a lot of people don't agree with the post-traumatic stress disorder, that the word's not a disorder, but the truth behind it is, um, it's still diagnosed through the DSM, which is diagnostic statistics manual that the VA uses, that the military uses. It's still a considered a mental disorder. And when you really look at what's happening in your body, it's not a disorder. Your body's functioning exactly the way mm -hmm. it was created in a, you know, I'm pretty known that I'm a Christian and I believe I was created, uh, you know, and I think it's actually a beautiful thing, an incredible thing our, that our body's designed and created to respond a certain way to trauma. Yeah. And it's, it's a survival not a, mechanism, it is, right? It's a survival yeah. mechanism. So it, you have a traumatic event and you don't want to be in, at risk against so your body. Your limbic system remembers that event, knows how to respond to it in a way uh, by, you know, making these physiological changes in your body to make you uh, be able to see, see better, hear better, your audio exclusion, the way these things occur. You know, as a particular shooting I was in, and, um, you know, I, I remember... I remember like, you know, firing my, my pistol and I, you know, everything just slows down. I could see the casings rolling at the top, uh, at the top of my weapon. I could hear the mechanics functioning and everything's just shutting down. I could, and my buddy was shooting over my shoulder. I didn't even know he was there shooting, but I knew it was him and I could hear his weapon functioning. I had no ear pro in. I didn't have, you know, any, uh, ear, any kind of ear pro. And you think it would have blown my eardrums out, but it didn't, but I mm -hmm. hear these like light, you know, just kind of these light pops. 
going through and and I'm thinking like how I'm I'm thinking you know in the aftermath I'm thinking how did my eardrums get blown out never any ringing but I could hear someone talking 20 20 yards in front of me I could hear Mm -hmm. someone talking like how does that happen how's your body have the ability to do that and I've never had anyone any psychologist be able to explain that to me but I I do believe our body's designed to be able to function in those environments and when you go through an experience like that your body stores that in your limbic system and the next time your body thinks it's in that scenario it's it, your limbic system sets off and all your, all the physiological effects of your body go back to that mm-hmm. state in order so you, so you could be, you know, optimal and, and, uh, in your performance to survive. And when that occurs outside of a real threat, it feels scary. Yeah. It doesn't feel natural, right? You're, yeah. you're riding air, you're flying in an airplane and all of a sudden your body goes back to that state because it thinks it's in a, in a, in a threat. And, uh, you know, you become, you feel like you're disordered. You feel like your body's failing on you. Well, I, I really don't understand, you know, uh, the, number one, I, I'm, I'm under impressed by the amount that we don't understand when it comes to, to trauma and, and, and how uh, our brains operate in trauma. But more so, like you said, you know, people want the diagnostic mechanical understanding of why things take place because it's a natural thing. I mean, the fact that you have post traumatic stress, whether you're in the military or civilian who goes through stress, which many people do. Sure. It's just a natural process and understanding that it's a process. It's, it's kind of like the, when you, when you talk about, um, depression where everybody, you know, if you're, if you're not the one who's talking about depression, you're the one pretending like you've never been depressed. But the reality is everybody's been through some form of mental distress, depression, anxiety. And so when we, when we, uh, overtly communicate it, it, we can create the conversation where now we can start to figure out kind of the diagnostic behind it. But our types of personalities, we, we need to know uh, how to figure out how to diagnose what's wrong in the first place. Because when we mechanically understand it, then we have a better understanding of uh, mitigating things yeah. when they're happening. And, and I think that's a big lack of education, which I know a, a lot of the education that you guys are providing at Mighty Oaks, um, you're doing this in talks, in engagements, and seminars, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, what, are, what are some of the things that you guys as a nonprofit are, are focused on um, when it comes to post-traumatic stress? Well, our, our, our primary effort, you know, if we look at our primary goal for Mighty Oaks, it's, it's to eradicate veteran suicide. I mean, we, we all know the numbers are still are high. Which is the uh, end state of the worst case scenario, it's right? It's the worst and, case scenario. I mean, yeah. PTSD would have been the, you know, where it started. The worst case scenario would, would be, you know, suicide. Yep. Someone reaching a point where they're so hopeless. And, and really, uh, you know, if I could kind of take a, Fork and road for a second. Yeah. Go back. Like, why this is so important to me is because of where I ended up. You know, I again I, when I was coming home from from deployments between you know my wife would pick me up from the airport and I'm back at my house. Like, I should be happy to see my family. I should be excited. I've been going from them for months, and uh, within a day or two, I'm like a psychopath, man. And my, my you know one time I'm coming home and my daughter's like so excited. Her dad's gonna be home for the birthday birthday party and. You know, she didn't like the icing on her cake and, and I like flipped out and I took my little girl's birthday cake and threw it against the wall and destroyed her, my little girl's birthday. And it's like, mm-hmm. I knew I was like out of control. And so my response to that was just to distance myself from them and isolate myself from them. And I really think about that moment because my realization of that should have been to get help, but instead it was to do the worst thing that you could do that leads to suicide. And that's the isolation of yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's common in our field, common, right? That's common amongst common. us. Yeah. You don't, you don't want to, you don't want to face the fact you're dealing with that and you Maybe there's some shame involved and, and, uh, you don't want to ask for help. And that's, that's what I did. And that began because I didn't address it then that, you know, that was the fork in the road for me. And I started going down a very dark path, uh, isolate myself and my family again, that, 
that anger turned into anxiety. I started having these physiological symptoms and it led to me being, you know, not being able to do my job anymore. And that the result of that put me down a pretty dark path. Now I had this, this other option that I thought was going to be going to help me. And, um, you know, I've been doing martial arts since I was five years old. I was already a professional fighter. I was fighting on the side while I was in the military. And so I was pretty good at it. So, um, for me, like I am just going to dive into that. It's masculine. It's going to help me build back my ego. I started getting attention from it right away. I built a big school that had like a thousand students, which is big for a martial arts school. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, you know, won a world title belt. Um, I became 18 two as a professional fighter fighting, you know, Bellator and strike force and all these big shows. And so on the outside, I looked like I was dealing with things. Well, I was successful, but, uh, that was really a fake, really a, a fake facade of success. It was, uh, I was not well. I was still dealing with panic attacks every night. Uh, me and my, my family was still living on eggshells, worried about, you know, setting me off. I, um, and I was just really going in a darker, darker place. My, my marriage was dead. Like me and my wife were, most nights I would sleep in the gym at her friend's house or my kid's bedroom, um, you know, in my, in my own bed. Like when my wife's back turned to me, it's probably the loneliest I've ever been in my life. Just thinking we just, we hate each other. Like our marriage was dead. And, um, and just that separation from my family, which led me into an affair. It's pretty easy to do if you're an yeah. athlete, even if you're five yeah. foot three and ugly and have big ears, like yeah. pretty yeah. easy. And, uh, so, you know, I just walked out on my family and, and, uh, made this decision that we would get divorced and, uh, which many, you know, the, the suicide, uh, the divorce rate on Camp Pillon, I, I know the divorce rates are pretty spread out, but in Camp Pillon, I know it's about 80% in combat yeah, oh, deaths. Yeah. So it's pretty high. And, uh, that's where my family was headed. And we moved into two separate apartments sold our house, signed 12 month leases. And, uh, it was that time that I really hit the lowest point in my life. I'd, I had a fight on strike force and I won that fight and, um, building up to that fight, I had a lot of support around me, friends around me. But when that fight was over, I, I felt like, um, you know, completely alone. And I had this kind of moment that I realized like, you know, um, a lot of people that I thought was idiots, my wife for never understanding my, my childhood. I grew up in a, you know, very, three generations of Marines in my family, my dad and myself and my son, my dad was a Vietnam vet who dealt with the same stuff and never, never dealt with it. And, uh, so a very abusive childhood. And so I would blame that. I'd blame the military, I blame all kinds of people. And I realized like it was me, like I'm the common denominator. I'm the problem. And I thought my family would be sad if I was gone, but I thought they would be better off. And that's the, you know, talking to people, talking to families who have lost people from suicide. That's the same hopeless thought that finds a home in the hearts of 20 plus veterans a day that somehow they're going to, you know, your family's going to be sad, but they're going to be better off. And mm-hmm. that's just not true. Um, I would, but I was sitting in my closet and you know, many, and I say, that's not one time I would, for a period of about two weeks, I'd go sit in my closet trying to build up the courage and my wife's, my family's pictures on the floor, um, in front of me. And I had a, a Glock 22 pistol and mm-hmm. I would, you know, sit there and, and try to contemplate, uh, build up the courage to do it. What kept me from doing it was that uh, my son Hunter was the only one with the key to my apartment. And I knew he would probably come in and find me. And I didn't want my kids to find me that way. And so I started thinking, how can I make it look like an accident cleaning my gun or something like that? And, and I was like, well, no one's going to probably believe that because of my experience with firearms. And uh, it was during one of those moments trying to build up that courage. And my wife, she knocked on my door and, and intervened. And uh, she didn't know it. She was coming there to get some paper signed for the divorce. And uh, But she, as she knocked on the door, I slid that pistol under a blanket. And I answered the door. And we got in this argument. I don't even remember what it was over. It was just me being a jerk. And she asked me a question that you know, radically changed my life. She asked me how I could do everything I did in the, in the Marine Corps. She saw me become a recon Marine. She saw me do the training for this, the, the JSOC task force and these deployments. She knew what we were doing on deployments. 
Um, she saw me train for these fights, cutting, you know, 35 pounds to make weight for fights and training broken and tired and all these things. She saw me like the discipline I had in my professional life. And she's like, how could you do all of that? And when it comes to your family, you'll quit. And, uh, that question for me, it just cornered me and I felt like, you know, she was absolutely right. I had been successful at professional things in life, but it came to the most important things, being a father, being a husband, being that young 17 year old kid that the Marine Corps was the second chance of life for me that raised his hand and said he wanted to do something important with his life. I quit in all those things, including, including my health and my own will to live. And, uh, for me, it was like, uh, uh, that second fork in the road to where I could get back on the path that I was supposed to be on. And I didn't know how to do it. I had a lot of people around me in my life at the time running that gym and, and having the success as a fighter. Um, but I, I knew I couldn't do it alone and I knew I couldn't do it with those people I'd surrounded myself by not any fault to those people, but I had put myself in a position of no accountability. Like I surrounded myself by people that would tell me everything I wanted to hear and not the hard things I needed to hear. And so my wife had been going to this church and then she introduced me to a man named Steve Toth, um, who met me at a coffee shop. He was going to introduce me to another retired seal who was a chaplain now who was going to help me. But when I met this guy, Steve, he had the perfect gift to help me. He has ADD, like really bad. Mm-hmm. He didn't have any patience. And, and uh, it was very important to me because I was so manipulative. You know, I was AFO. <laughs> I'd been trained to be manipulative and I was manipulative by nature. And so I would have said all the right things. But this guy, Steve, we met at a Starbucks coffee shop and I'd written a five paragraph order, like an operation order of how I was going to fix my life, like his perfect plan. And I, I slid it over to him, like really smug, like, like, hey, check this out. And he even read it. He slid it back to me and he tapped on it and told me that I was going to fail. And I was like, I was really offended because I didn't even know this guy. And, and he, uh, he said, hey, this thing doesn't have anything to do with your relationship with God. Like, I'm not going to waste my time and I'm not going to let you uh, waste yours. And um, for me in my life, I tried everything. I tried the pills. I'd been on lots of pills for PTSD. I didn't like them. They made me feel like a zombie mm-hmm. and out of control. I, had, uh, I tried the MMA and jiu-jitsu. I tried the counseling. None of those things worked. And um, we have a saying at Mighty Oaks with our warriors, if what you're doing isn't working, then why not try something different? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, for me, I, I was at the end of my rope. I was ready to die. I wanted to die. I wanted, I, I, I hoped like I would get in a car accident or something like that. I was just wishing to die to, so I could kind of coward out and not have to kill myself. And, uh, so I thought, you know, let me give this a try. And, um, and so I, I made a step with this guy, Steve, to restore my faith. And for a year he, he mentored me in a, in a biblical manhood. And, uh, what I discovered through that was through that process was that, um, not only was I finding through these changes I was making in my life, was I finding restoration in my relationship with my wife and my children and people closest to me, but I found hope for the first time. I had, I found a hope in a future and I was able to see a path forward. Um, before that, I wasn't able to see any future for myself and I was able to step in uh, the purpose that I believe I was created to live. And that was through the realization that I, I wasn't the only one that was dealing with this. Cause when I was dealing with this, I thought, like no one, you kind of this self pity party. Like no one could feel so depressed that they don't want to live. No one's marriage could be as bad as my marriage. No one could have these panic attacks the way they feel like they just are going to die at any moment. No one possibly could understand what what I'm going through. And I really had believed that in my own mind. But coming to the other side of it, stepping out of that ballet, stepping out of that fog, I was able to see like, wow, I'm not the only one. Like in fact, people are worse than me because they actually are going through with killing themselves at a rate at the time of 22 a day. All these families are getting divorced. But here I am, I felt like I found the solution. It was like I was dying of cancer and this guy, Steve, like introduced me to the cure. Like I didn't want to share it. I felt obligated to share it. And so when we started Mighty Oaks, it wasn't like uh, we were, me and my family were still bleeding. We weren't ready to start a nonprofit to help other people, but we just felt obligated to share what we had discovered. And, uh, you know, it wasn't an effort like, oh, these poor veterans, we need to start a foundation and help them. It was just like, 
I found, I found the way out of this dark valley and I, I have an obligation to share it. And that's what we did. And, uh, I'm so thankful that even though we weren't equipped or prepared to do it and that, that we did, because, uh, it's been probably the greatest, uh, chapter of my life and, and it'll be the legacy of my life to have been able to share that path forward. Cause we've been able to impact and help so many other people. And, um, the, we'll go back to what your question was the core focus of Mighty Oaks. That's why suicide is the core focus because I believe it's the end game for this PTSD thing. And, and, and just like any other operation, if you get, if you get further and further to the left of the X, if you get ahead of it, mm -hmm. then you could prevent it. So when we first started Mighty Oaks, it was people right on the edge of that suicide, the veterans. And then we started moving left we started getting the guys just getting transitioning out. Then we started getting active duty guys were, uh, first the Marine Corps, then the Navy, and then, then the army and then air force were sending people in orders to us. So we were catching guys as they were struggling and the wounded warrior battalion and people like that were sending guys on orders to us to catch them before. And then we shifted to our resiliency where we're going. I mean, I've been at Marine Corps boot camp for four years now. I speak to every Marine that goes to Marine Corps boot camp on resiliency, combat resiliency, spiritual resiliency, and helping them be prepared for the things that we know they're going to face because of the experience of, of serving in the military and going to combat. We know the hardships they're going to face so we can prepare them on the front end they won't ever have to be in a closet with a pistol in their hand tr trying to make a decision whether they want to live or die. They'll have thought about that in advance and mm -hmm. they'll prepare themselves, not just mentally and physically, but spiritually as well. The kind of the, the all the pillars of, re of resiliency and uh, equip themselves for the things that we, we know they're going to face because we've been at war for 20 years now. Uh, this is a being in the military, whether you deploy or not deploy, it's, it's, it's a hard life. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, uh, and I think these guys need to be equipped. And so I'm so thankful that we were able to take this message on the front end and help prepare them then also pull the veil back and understand what PTSD really is and also understand what it's not. Yeah. Uh, well, the fact that you're, you know, able to communicate it and, uh, you know, serve as like the AFO for leading the way for the, yeah. the organization and your guys' mission is, 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 no, is a noble cause. And I, it's funny, as you were saying, telling that story, I have the same exact story. Yeah. Just in different forms. But it's like yeah. literally the same exact thing of my life falling apart, a marriage lost. And just ruined everything, and you know the the thoughts of suicide and everything else, and and I find, um, you know, when you find the courage, it's liberating to communicate it openly because you do realize that there's so many brothers or yeah. ancestors that are that are suffering from the same problem, and then immediately it allows them to be able to share their story and openly communicate about something that's just so that we stagnated so much in personal growth that we've hidden under a veil when everybody's going through some form of suffering and in, in, in the yeah. first place. And that's really the, the reason Mighty Oaks has grown exponentially has the way it has is because of, uh, our model of, of train the trainer, you know, Christian terms would be discipleship. And when a guy comes through our program, we tell them right away, you know, you may be diagnosed with PTSD, but you're not a victim. You're a freaking warrior. Uh, you face some hard stuff and you're struggling. Yes. But uh, you're not coming here just to get well and get a quilt and some cookies and, and uh, do some fun, fun things on, you know, outdoor activities. You're coming here to get in a position to help other guys, mm -hmm. like to get back in the fight, to have a purpose a again. Purpose, a mission. Yeah. 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 Well, I, 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 I always wondered this because, you know, in special operations, the assumption is that uh, we're more immune to it. And our own assumptions are that we are and because yeah. we're more resilient and there's obviously different levels of resiliency in the offensive uh, process of going through difficult times, overcoming obstacles and fear. Um, but there's something to this because on the back side of it, you know, like specifically for trauma, and I want to get your take on this. I, 
like if I had buddies die in my hands, like, you know, I've, I've been affected with trauma. I've seen, t- you know, teammates killed, injured, and just gone through this uh, vicious cycle through all these combat rotations. But none of that really bothered me as far as like, you know, dealing with that. And maybe there's some suppression of it, but more so, like you said, when you start to build out your pattern of life in the transition process, um, you start neglecting things sure. like your personal life. Like my family, I made a whole bunch of bad decisions and uh, my family, my, uh, my wife at the time, completely abandoned her and my family. And then, you know, you got to the point where you were asked by your spouse, you know, you have all this discipline, you have all this resiliency and you, you achieve so many things, which is the same story for me. But we weren't, I wasn't able to deal with the things that were at home. And it was just, it was this feeling of guilt. Like I could deal with everything out external, but I was so, uh, I felt so much guilt and not wanting to even look my spouse in the face and not deal with the reality of my real life. Right. Not, not the life that I was orchestrating, you know, deliberately, but my real life, my family. Um, and I always think about this because I think about you know apex predators who who go off into the woods to die because they don't want to burden their tribe, their herd, their pack, and then kind of the evolution. I was talking to Jim Shockey this morning on a podcast, and like you know the evolution of a hunter where you know you're vicious, you're offensive, you you do all these things in the hunt, but on the the back end of it, you you start developing empathy and you start realizing the overall journey. And, and, you know, what's your perspective on, you know, especially being a special operations guy, why can't we address the things that we're dealing with in our personal lives? But it's so easy to be, you know, at the height for you to win a title championship and at the same time be at your lowest. And so you could segment this kind of like, you know, orchestrated effort to work hard and be the best. Um, But at the core, you're broken. I mean, what, what, what do you think it is? Yeah, I mean... You hear and you say that's our story is the same story that I hear that constantly in, you know, crazy, even outside of special operations, even outside of the military, I'll give that contrast, right? I'm, I'm, I'm at fighting at strike force. I'm at this just top level. I'd never been beaten. And at the same time, the very same time I'm wanting to not want to live anymore because I've, I've deserted my family. Like the contrast that isn't just military guys, right? You got people that are in corporate jobs that are, they're neglecting their family while they're seeking the next promotion, uh, you know, and the next achievement in life. And I think guys like, especially guys like you go back to guys like us in the military, our, our goal, if you probably track your, I don't have to know you well to probably track your military history, you achieve one thing and it's like, what's the next thing, right? Like there's never enough. You're never going to fill that, that cup. Cause something's like missing inside of you. Chasing so the you, rainbow yeah, is you're what ch- you call yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Chasing the rainbow. You're, you're always going to move on to the next thing. And that's exactly how my life was. I'm sure yours and, and so many guys in, in our communities, our lives are like that. And people are like that outside the military too. And, uh, you know, I think it just takes the, the time to pause and, and reflect on, and I don't think we do it and pause and reflect on what's most important. Um, uh, you know, a lot of guys from the special operations community are able to persevere through their careers. And when I see guys really sh- from the special operations community really struggle with the things I've struggled with, it's when they are not serving anymore in that capacity. It's like they were able to to hold it together long enough. And, and then when they their, uh, their mission's done, when they retire, when they're done, it's like within a few years, the wheels fly off. And mm-hmm. it's pretty consistent that I see that. And, and these are guys that would think that would never happen to them, just like me and probably just like you. It's mm-hmm. never happened to me. But I, I think it comes down to 
that's where the resiliency aspect comes in. It comes down to say, hey, you, I know you think this will never happen to you, but you need to take a knee and you need to pause and you need to think about all the things in your life that are important to, to fight for. Because as much as we love serving in the military, one day that chapter is going to be closed. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and we have to be able to think about where we're going to be, what mission we're going to have after that, what's important to us, being a husband, being a father, being a contributor to our communities uh, outside of the military. If we're not investing in those things and preparing for those things in advance, then when that, that job's over, because the military is just a job, then uh, you're gonna feel like you're gonna have that feeling, that lost sense of purpose. And the people ask me all the time, like, what's the number one thing we see people struggling with at Mighty Oaks is like killing bad guys or seeing their buddies killed. And the truth is, that's not it. It's like, not it. Yeah, no. the guys, I never seen a, a real warrior come to Mighty Oaks and be like, oh my gosh, every time I close my eyes, I see that like, all these Taliban guys are killed. Nope. I can't let no. Yeah, Man, no I, problem. I mean, with most that. yeah, I'll go back yeah. right now and put bullets in Taliban faces. Yep. <laughs> you know, I, I yeah. mean, I have no problem with that. Um, losing buddies. It's tragic. It's, it's terrible. Um, but I don't think those things set me off uh, me in the deepest part of, yeah. of my life. I think it was a lack of purpose. And yeah. when I see these guys come to Mighty Oaks, the most, the deepest wound they have is that lack of purpose in your life. And you cannot wait, whether you're a special operator or whether you're supply clerk in the military, whatever spectrum you fall in the military serving, uh, you can't lose sight of there's got to be a, a, a purpose in your life bigger than the military. And that doesn't take away from your job. In fact, I think that makes you more capable to be a combat ready warrior. When the people who are, who are stable in their personal lives are going to be the most effective warrior in a battlefield. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I think sometimes, especially people in our field believe that they have to be 100% focused on the mission. That's the most important thing in their life. They can't, uh, they can't, you know, they can't have a number two or the number two has to be a far second. I just watched uh, that movie, uh, free solo, that documentary, yeah, that yeah. insane uh, free solo climber. Yep. And, and that's where, that's where he was. He was like, there is no, like, like he's talking about relationships with, with women and stuff like that. There is no, number yeah, two. it doesn't like, matter. Cli yeah. Climbing is the only thing. Yep. And, uh, I mean, that guy, you know, gets in a car accident and loses his, his ability to climb. He breaks his hand or what's he got left. What's he got left. He has nothing. He has no reason to live at all. And, uh, you know, and, and also it probably makes him a reckless climber. Like I watched that movie and I'm like, that is an absolutely amazing, probably the most incredible athletic achievement in all of history. Yeah. However, I kind of, I personally wish he wouldn't have done that because he's going to inspire people to yeah. get out. Oh, and, yeah. and, uh, and you know, it's just, I mean, he's not a, he's not living a healthy lifestyle. Eventually he's going to, you know, I hate to say it, but he's either going to get himself hurt or yeah. killed and so, or someone, someone else because his, his life is just so focused. And we see this in military guys. I mean, guys that you probably followed as your leaders that were so focused on their job and they, and they passed it on to you mm -hmm. and, and it passed it on to me because, you know, we idolize our leaders and, uh, and, and I think strong leaders in the military should be able to show a balance in life and a purpose outside of the military and, uh, and, uh, and a belt to demonstrate a holistic lifestyle where you're able to be a good husband, be a good father, mm -hmm. be, a, be a good contributor to your community and ha and have a future for yourself when the military, you know, is, is gone. We have a, have a stable, uh, lifestyle at home. Um, and I, and I don't believe that caused you to sacrifice, to sacrifice your ability as a warrior. I think it makes you even stronger as a warrior. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, I, it's just a whole bunch of things going through my head, but one of the things that, uh, you said is, you know, the military is a job and, and I, I try to advocate for this for, you know, leaving impressions upon young people who want to be in special operations, that they have to strike the balance, that they have to find the balance prior to getting out. And on the last podcast, I talk about, and I honestly think this, I, I think based on the people that I know in special operations who've been serving in one of the longest periods of war or, you know, the country has gone through 
that these guys at the top, tip of the spear who, you know, it's, it's not like these guys are finance clerks and they, they're getting one rotation out of a six-year career. These guys are doing 20-plus year careers with 10-plus combat rotations, and they find this grand sense of purpose. It's Like you said, it's not the body count. It's not losing comrades who had fulfilled a sense of purpose, who knew what they were getting into. It's the fact that they're going to get out and they're going to drive away and look in their rearview mirror, and it's all going to be over. And then they have to find their own sense of purpose. Like I, honestly, I literally built Philcraft, my company, around a model to support me emotionally to be able to get through life to find a grander purpose and being able to relay information that helped me survive in combat, relay equipment, and then I find this grand sense of purpose. And then all the men that are with it, we got three Marines that are hired. We got an Army guy who just retired. And these guys are finding that same sense of purpose. But I'm scared and fearful for the thousands of men who are going to be getting out over the next few years uh, indefinitely who have lived these long lives of, uh, of, of fulfillment and purpose, and now they have absolutely nothing. Yeah. Um, if, if, if somebody comes off of uh, active duty or is uh, coming to, to, to find you guys, what are some of the things that you guys do in order to get them on the right track to find that purpose? Yeah, so, I mean, we are a faith-based program. Um, not all the people that come to our program uh, would subscribe to our, our, our faith. Uh, in fact, I'd say about half of the people would come there and say they're Christians. The other half would say they're atheists, agnostic, or just angry at God if there is a God. Yeah. And so that's what we, that's what we deal with. Uh, our, our methodology, however, is to contrast their life to the life that we believe they were created to live. Yeah. And so we use a, a biblical... And values. Yeah. And va- yeah, yeah, values. And everyday, everyday living. Um, so we could go back individually, one-on-one, to an individual incident or series of incidents that led them to be diagnosed with PTSD or to be struggling in life. Uh, but that would really not achieve anything. Uh, what, what we found that that achieves uh, the ultimate uh, level of success is when people could accept personal responsibility, not for what had happened to them, but the way they're moving forward. Yeah. In other words, like I didn't end up in that closet with my pistol in my hand trying to decide whether I want to live or die because of something that happened to me in my childhood or something that happened in Afghanistan. I ended up there because of the choices I made in response to those things. Mm-hmm. And, and the decisions I made, and I n- never lost control of the ability to be able to choose my path moving forward. Mm-hmm. To come to that realization and accept responsibility for not what's happened to you, but what's happening moving forward mm-hmm. is a game changer for anyone's life. And that's kind of our methodology as a corner guys and, and based on a peer-to-peer level, because you know a psychologist can't sit across from you and tell you um, you know, about where you've been, you're going to be, you're probably going to pick him up and throw him out the window if he says, you know, anything mm-hmm. challenging to you. Uh, but we're able to peer to peer, tell them the hard things like, Hey dude, like, yeah, you accomplished some great things in the military. You had, a, you had a, a rough deployment. You mm-hmm. lost, you know, I think a guy's like one of the worst case scenarios is a, uh, you know, three, five and, um, uh, third battalion, fifth Marines and sing in Afghanistan. We had so many guys that came from there, lost 27 Marines in, a, in one deployment, 70 mm-hmm. something amputees. Like that sucked. Yeah, that sucked, and that could make you feel pretty bad about your life. However, like moving forward, what are you um, going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do now? And you can't blame that deployment on the on you being a drunk. You can't blame that deployment. You being a jerk to your wife. You yelling at your kids like they're a lance corporal. You can't blame that deployment on that. You have to own that and take responsibility of that because you have a future and a life to live, and you have a, a you still have the opportunity to contribute and be a positive contribution to this world. And you're going to sit sit back and in your hands and and complain about not having a purpose and you, you know, moving moving forward. 
that's a lie that you've given to yourself. You have purpose moving forward. You have to step into that purpose. Um, and I believe that we were, you know, again, as a person of faith, I believe we were created to have purpose. And when we choose to not uh, live a life of purpose, when we choose to step out of that, it, it's because of the fact that we were created, it feels something feels drastically missing mm-hmm. and we become hopeless and desperate and it leads to, you know, suicide and, uh, or other, you know, terrible things in life. So we could bring someone to their position to really realize that they have to take responsibility for their life moving forward. They have to make changes on a daily, on a, on a daily scale, which is like, uh, in areas of character, of discipline, of how do you manage your, your money, you manage your time. You think someone would look at our, our curriculum of a program and say, what's managing your time have to do with PTSD? Well, if you're trying to fit 27 hours in a 24 hour day and you're already dealing with anxiety, has a lot to do mm-hmm. with PTSD, managing your time, managing your money, managing your relationships, making wise choices, making, having a discipline to live out those wise choices. Those are the things that's going to help you go beyond uh, a life without purpose into a life of purpose and a, ability to actually do something important uh, and be a contributor, like opening a company like Fieldcraft. I mean, the, having a discipline to be able to do that, despite the hardships that you're facing in spite of them is what's going to lead you to success not sitting back and, and saying, hey, some doctor diagnosed me with this, so I'm going to sit back and collect a 100% disability check for the rest of my life, not speaking against anybody collecting their benefits, but if that's to be the, the, the you know, totality of your existence, then that's not healthy. You're not going to feel purposeful. If you're sitting back collecting that disability check and taking 25, 30 pills a day for PTSD, you're not going to have the desire to live. You're not going to be able to contribute to society and, and do important things in life again. So it's just, it's just personal responsibility. Uh, the same thing that made us successful in the military, applying those things to personal, uh, personal lives moving forward and I get back and getting back in the fight to live again. And, uh, you know, it's, that's a tough message to sell. And that's why we're, uh, our programs, a peer to peer model. All of our instructors are guys that came through a program and we train them to turn around and pay it forward. And they're able to not say hey, this in theory, they're able to say, Hey, I came here. I was mm-hmm. in the same position you're in and I made a choice to stop blaming other people, stop blaming the world for my problem and, and made a choice to get back in the fight and make these decisions in my everyday life. And, and this is where I was, this is where I am today, and this is where I'm headed. I don't have it all figured out, but this is the way, the way I'm going, and it's better than the way I was going, and do you want to come with me? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the message that we, we give the guys. We don't pretend to have it all figured out. We just like, hey, we don't, we don't know. We may not ever arrive at the destination, but we know the direction that yeah. we need to go. Well, and, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing that you guys are creating a path Period. I mean, there's so many institutions that focus on, you know, minutia that really doesn't benefit the overall, uh, you know, you're, when you give somebody and you train them and then they train and on, they pay it forward, yeah. then you're creating a, a hi- hierarchy and a process that's going to continue to evolve progressively. And I think that's a, one of the biggest problems that I've seen is, one, you know, obviously our mental health institutions, our physical health institutions are broken. And so sure. the healthcare system can't take care of it. That's why we have nonprofits like yours that are, are able to deal with it. And then secondly, the fact that you guys, uh, as a byproduct of uh, helping veterans, are educating the public. Yeah. And because that's what I'm learning through this process is there's a whole bunch of things that I, I thought that are false, that, that aren't real and myself and around peers and everybody else. But I'm also understanding that a lot of our society doesn't get it when it comes to the way trauma is dealt with, with uh, veterans. Sure. And, and so, you know, I, 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 any examples of those, I just think about to my past relationships and the women that I dated and where I've ruined those relationships and I, and I apologize to all those, those girlfriends. Um, but I made a lot of mistakes and, but if I had somebody 
that could lay it out for me. You know, if I had the nonprofit at the time to lay it out for me and to explain to my spouse at the time that, hey, this is what is happening and this is the reason why, then I might have been in a better position because, you know, I, we, we like to diagnose ourselves and figure things out and that's the way we operate. Right. But when things kind of fall apart, um, you know, that snowball ro- rolls downhill and then we want to be selfless to ourselves and our families and we walk off in the wood line and we, and we do... Uh, which is the you know the worst symptom of mental health uh, issues is something we think is selfless, but it's actually the most selfish thing that you could do on the yeah. planet in the your isola- life. The isolation, right? The isolation yeah. and taking your own life. Yeah, I mean, it's it, I, I I remember thinking about it myself and going, you know, I was at the height of my probably military career as a you know sergeant major in the reserve component of SF. At the same time, contracting with a, a really great organization, and then on the surface everybody's like mike is squared away he's yeah. awesome like operationally he's all over it and then the reality was i was that guy hiding in the closet you know i it, you know my story exactly like yours where i was trying to justify like hey i've i have everything on the surface that looks good but deep down at the core i'm broken and i don't want to be broken anymore and i don't want to disappoint the the ones closest to me anymore and so it was an easy way out until I started realizing that it was the most selfish way out. You know, like you said, how selfish would it have been for your son to have to walk in on that and to deal with it? Yeah. 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 I mean, um, probably one of the hardest jobs I've had in in Mighty Oaks is, uh, dealing with the aftermath of suicide. We get called a lot by commands like, Hey, somebody just took their life. Can you come talk to the command? And we do that. And, um, and then, when, of course, when I go to communities, I speak at a lot of churches. When I go to communities, I'm always outreaching for Mighty Oaks, and I hold this little flyer up right here, and I'm mm-hmm. like, "Hey, if anybody wants to come to our program, it's totally free. Like, we pay we pay for the travel. We give that because we don't. I mean, guys, when they get out, the suicide rates on active duty at the time it was 22. That was 21 veterans, one active duty. Now it's increased. Now it's like four a day on active duty, mm-hmm. and uh, and 16 on, in the veteran community. So it's kind of taking a shift. But uh, we know these guys are back in their communities uh, alone, feeling pur- purposeless. And, you know, many of them are just, they're disconnected from their brotherhood. And that's why, you know, oftentimes, and then the increase of VA drugs and stuff like that and lead them to that point. And so when I'm speaking to these churches, I always do a strong out- outreach. And um, there was this couple, and bro- I was in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, uh, at a, a church called the Assembly. Uh, pastor Ron Woods was the pastor, and, he, and, um, and I'm speaking, and I'm giving that same pitch. In the crowd was this Marine named Pete and his wife, Heather, and, uh, and I gave that pitch, and his wife did what most wives do in church. They nudged her husband and said, hey, you need to go to this program. Mm-hmm. And Pete, you know, a Marine diagnosed with PTSD, said, um, you know, I don't want to take a spot from someone else. Yeah. Yeah. How, many, how many times have you heard oh, that? Oh, yeah. yeah. I've I mean, done it myself, yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't want to take that spot, and somebody yeah. else needs it more than me. Yep. Well, six months later, I got a call from Pastor Ron uh, and told me what had happened. Pete uh, ended up standing in the back of a pickup truck, surrounded by a policeman with a gun in his hand. And uh, he put the pistol to his head, and the last thing he said was, "Tell my wife I love her, and I'm doing this for her." And he pulled the trigger, and uh, that's the message that his wife got. And um, Pastor Ron called and said, "Hey, will you come and speak to Heather?" And so my wife and I went, and we we're very close to Pastor Ron, and and uh, we spoke to Heather, and, and Heather uh, she told a different story, and she wanted to share that story with the world that her life wasn't better. She said how when she went to the morgue and she put her head on his chest because she just couldn't believe he was gone. She was waiting for a heartbeat while he's mm. laying on a metal table and how it never Whoa. came. Calling his mom and hearing his mom scream. She's like, his mom will never be the same. Yeah. And at night, she's like, at night, like I, I need him and he's not there. I'm alone in this house. And, and he, he thought he was going to, she said something so powerful to me. She said, Pete thought suicide would take away 
uh, his pain, but all I did was transferred his pain to everyone that loved him. Ooh. And, yeah. uh, I mean, and it, I, I just see the devastation on the other side and that thought that I had that my family's going to be sad, but they're going to be better off. That's just not true. Yeah. And it's a lie that we tell ourselves in our, in our desperate moment. And it, it is a selfish thing. Yeah. And I, I believe that there's a lot of relation to what you said, like the apex predator, you're going to go off by yourself and die yeah. because it's going to be better. You're not going to put a burden on anyone else. And uh, maybe that works in the animal kingdom, yeah. but, uh, but you know, we, we're, as humans, we have relationships and, uh, and we have an impact and we, we are going to leave a legacy in this world, mm-hmm. whether, you know, whether we choose to or not, you're going to leave an impression in this world. Now, what the legacy is, is, uh, you know, up to the decisions you make in life. Yeah. And, uh, man, I, I think I'm so thankful looking back now that my legacy at that Marine Pete, who did that to his wife and the family that yeah. my legacy wasn't leaving an exclamation point of failure for my kids to follow when things get hard in their life, that I'm, my legacy is able to be uh, something totally different for my kids and other people uh, through the work they've got to, to do at Mighty Oaks to have taken a hardship in my life, a very dark period of my life, and, and have been able to turn it around and and uh, and make that, that dark period something that can be used as a tool yeah. to, uh, to leave a, a positive mark on this world and, uh, you know, and maybe it sounds arrogant saying that, but I'm just really proud of that uh, from me and my family and the people I work with at Mighty Oaks. I'm very, I'm very proud of that. Our organization's full of people that uh, weren't just successful in life, but people that completely failed and fell in their face and got back up and, and, and uh, started moving forward again. And uh, yeah, I, I tell, just, I tell I, you know, I've, a lot of guys reach out to me on uh, direct message, especially on Instagram. And uh, I'll get all these guys that they'll start talking about the, the, uh, you know, if they're overcoming um, all these obstacles that they're facing and, you know, whether it was our podcast or something they heard or some kind of form of inf- inspiration, that whole pay it forward thing, I'm like, it's your responsibility now. It's like, hey, if I, you know, if I can get my Sergeant Major hat back on, I'm telling you it's your responsibility because yeah. all these men and women who suffer, but they have the perspective and the message to be able to influence and help somebody else gives them that sense of purpose and it's their responsibility. I yeah. mean, it's... I think it's every veteran's responsibility that served this country to educate the civilian populace, which is the majority, and educate them on uh, why they were patriots, why they were selfless, why they were broken and fixed themselves, all these different things that we served in in such a a structured capacity with so much motivation when we're in the military and have the uniform on. But, you know, we take the uniform off and we think that's the end. It's not the end. It's only the beginning. And so we need to be entrepreneurs and advocates and, you know, representatives of our community to lead in that capacity because that's, it's not a burden, it's a responsibility and we should own it, you know? You know what veterans like to do? Complain. Oh yeah. (laughs) We love to complain, right? And, uh, and it drives me absolutely, being a nonprofit space, it it drives me absolutely insane. And if I, I'm sure I'll probably offend some people saying this and, you know, so be it. I'm just pretty passionate about this is, is so many veterans just complain about the problem with uh, veteran suicide. Like, you know, you get these, these efforts with 22 and, uh, you know, organizations stand up just to talk about the problem. They sell yeah. t-shirts and they yep. do campaigns and they have 5k races. And, but there's, everybody's pointing at a problem. And I think at this point, everyone knows there's a problem, yep. but there's also solutions. It's like, what are you going to do about yeah, it? Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. A, it drives me absolutely insane. And, and, and I applaud, I know most of it's well-intended, so I should be careful how, I, but it's just, come on, man. Like, like there are solutions moving forward. Let's just talk about the problem. Let's talk about it. I mean, that's just like, you know, simple operational planning. You don't just 100%. talk about bring, you know, the solution. Just, yeah, bring the solution. Don't talk to me about a problem unless you have a solution. Yep. And, uh, you know, I think there's been this like a fad of, uh, the 22 thing that everyone's jumped on and yeah. they've forgotten the fact that there's actually 
those 22 represent people's people's lives, their, their people's families, people's futures. Like these are, these are names, like, you know, the names of individuals and souls and, and, uh, and something actually has to be done about it other than selling t-shirts and running 5k races. Like we have to be able to bring a solution to the table. And I, I mean, as a leader of my organization, uh, you know, we, we have team, we have leadership conferences and, uh, and leadership training. I'm like, don't ever make mighty oaks that but don't ever just talk about a problem without putting a solution on the table. Uh, that's what we exist for. And, uh, you know, I applaud all those organizations out there that, that are bringing awareness, but also point to a solution if you're going to do that. You know, it doesn't have to, you don't have to have the solution. You don't have to have an organization. You could have an awareness organization, uh, but when you bring that awareness, point to another organization that has a solution. Yeah. And, uh, you know, lead people to the way out. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that's so important. And it just, again, it just drives, drives me crazy. It does too. Me, me too. I mean, when, when terms are left so vague and indefinite, and everybody's just talking about it, you know, whether it's the guys doing the push ups on Facebook, it's like, I get it. Um, yeah. But there needs to be a reciprocal process that helps veterans as opposed to just communicating about it. We all know it's an issue, like you said, yeah. and it's, it's, it's way past that. Now it's time to figure out the solutions in, in order to do it. Um, just on this topic, because it's on, on my head, you had mentioned about the suicide. If somebody was in trouble, do you guys have a hotline or is there a point of contact or how does that work uh, as far as like reach, reach out? Because I know, uh, you know, having somebody or something to reach out to is very important for a lot of, a lot of veterans. Sure. Uh, you know, I always tell people Mighty Oaks is we're not the organization for a 911 hotline. Yep. Um, we won't be able to respond fast enough if somebody's in that closet or mm -hmm. um, the VA has a hotline. I'm not saying it's the best resource. Yep. If you need someone to talk to, uh, the VA has a hotline that's manned by other veterans. And so that's probably the, the best 911 uh, call I know to. Um, if someone's not in an imminent state, then definitely reach out to us. We have a phone number. We have a, a application process on our website. We made our application process super streamlined uh, mm -hmm. at, on the onset. So it's about a five-minute process to fill out. Someone will be back in touch with you like two to three days. Yeah. And, uh, you know, our, our first step is going to be to come to our legacy program. What's and, the website? Uh, mightyoaksprograms.org. Mighty Oaks, Mighty Oaks, O A K S programs, uh, dot org. Dot org. Awesome. And, um, you know, we, uh, on the website and the homepage, you'll be able to fly, find an apply button. Yeah. And they, we make it pretty easy. Um, even if you don't, even if you have questions, if somebody's listening and you have questions, you're like, well, I'm not sure. I want to know more about it. Just apply. Uh, it doesn't, it's not an obligation or anything. Cause when you apply, one of our team members, um, who, who does application coordination will contact you and they'll be able to talk through and answer those questions, uh, about if the program's right for you. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, by the way, um, a lot of people ask this. And so I want to make it known, like, again, there is no cost and their only qualification to come is that you have raised your hand and served. I don't care if you get kicked out. I don't care if you have a dishonorable discharge. Um, you know, I've, I've seen guys that had Navy crosses that got kicked out because, uh, you know, five DWIs. Well, does that drinking started off as a product of their service to our country? Yep. I know guys that uh that have came in, they went through Marine Corps boot camp, they got to their unit and they were training and they broke their leg and had to get discharged and they're all their buddies deployed and they didn't and they're yep. struggling and they're hurting because they feel like they should have went got to go too. Yeah. And there's no don't if you raise your hand, you could apply and you treat it the same. Um, we do have a triage process, so if someone's imminent sense of, uh, of doom, then we're going to get them in first. Yeah. But with 30 programs a year, we're able to get guys in pretty quickly. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about your your the books that you have. You have a book called An Unfair Advantage, Victory in the Midst of Battle, and uh, it, it's got a forward by uh, Boykin. 
Uh, tell me about this book. Uh, basically, uh, an unfair advantage was, you know, uh, me going to speak at a lot of events and, and I get the moms and the spouses and friends saying, Hey, I wish, I wish my, uh, you know, so, so-and-so a service member would have heard you speak, but they would never come to a church or anything like that to hear you speak. And, and I, you know, I wish they would go to a program, but they would never go to a program like yours. So I want to build a tool that someone could give to a warrior that would help them, uh, basically make that decision to step forward and get help. And so I took, uh, I took stories uh, from my time in Afghanistan, from my time in MMA, and I titled, uh, tied them to different different biblical stories that inspired me. Yeah, and uh, and and the book kind of takes you on a journey to make a decision to to get get well because we all know the the um, the people that are hardest to help are the people that don't want to get well, they don't want to get help. Yeah, and so that's what this story was written by. And an unfair advantage for me, it's the unfair advantage I've I've found in life, and that's a, a life of faith. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's been a, an integral part of my own uh, journey and my own sense of finding purpose and that, uh, that unfair advantage to any, any hardship I've, I'll face in life moving forward to overcoming that would be the, the advantage of having God in my life. It's amazing. And this is uh, available. Where can people find this book at? Uh, on our website, on Mighty Oaks, uh, uh, also on Amazon. If, uh, if you're a Marine, Marine like me and can't read, then it's on audiobook. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can get an audiobook on Amazon as well. And, um, yeah, so it's... Uh, uh, again, some of these stories in here, uh, you know, stories that, uh, just really inspired me personally. And uh, I think I have some really good tools to be able to move forward. So, uh, I hope, I hope if you're listening, you'll check it out. And uh, you have, uh, two other books that are here. Um, one of them is called path to resiliency and the other is the truth about PTSD. Yeah. And I like these books cause they're short. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they're cargo oh, pocket size. Yeah. The pocket size <laughs> books. Yeah. And these are meant to, uh, help people as well, right? Yeah. The, the path to resiliency is, uh, is really that component. When people talk to, uh, when people talk about resiliency, this, you know, the three or now there's four pillars of resiliency in most branches of the military, uh, uh, mind, body, spirit. And the fourth one they have added on has been social, having a good social network. But, uh, the spirit piece is kind of very left, very vague, mm-hmm. whether, um, it's particularly in a chaplaincy that we have today, which is somewhat, uh, in my opinion, universalism. Yeah. Uh, this is no real clear context in what spirituality means. And so it's what it means, means to me, what it means to us as, as uh, at Mighty Oaks, uh, what spirituality means and how spirituality can give you strength to fight the battles that you're going to face in life, not just in the military. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I get, again, I go to Marine Corps boot camp and speak every quarter. Uh, incredible that the Marine Corps allowed me to give this book out in, at boot camp. And so all the recruits at Marine Corps boot camp on, uh, at Camp, Pil- um, not Camp Pilon, uh, MCRD San Diego get this book. And, uh, and while they're and, in basic, while they're in basic, which if you know what anything about Marine Corps yeah, boot camp, say, if that's a gift. It's like doing prison yeah. ministry, man. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. they give them. So yeah. uh, I mean, they, they, when you go to Marine Corps boot camp, you get a driver's license. You can bring your driver's license. That's it. So they get this and able to read this, and uh, it's really cool. Now I get see people in the fleet, Marine Corps, and they're like, "Hey, I got that book." You, that's you really get amazing. Boot camp and, what an amazing and, uh, gift. Yeah. So it's it's understanding that spirituality isn't a weakness; that it's a strength. Yeah. Uh, in the battlefield uh, of, of of combat and in life. So what, what about the, uh, Jeremy Stallnecker book? It's called March or die moving forward when your world seems out of control. Yeah, man, Jeremy's, uh, Jeremy's you know, probably one of the best friends I've ever had in my life. And, um, uh, despite the fact that he's a Marine Corps officer, uh, <laughs> but, uh, man, Jeremy's story is incredible. He was a platoon commander, um, selected to lead a kind of beefed up platoon that left Kuwait, yeah. went across the border and went to the main presidential palace uh, to seize the presidential palace uh, during the 2003 invasion. He was the platoon commander for that, mm-hmm. uh, infantry platoon commander. And uh, so it's an incredible story of uh, his platoon seizing, that, uh, seizing the presidential palace in the battle from Kuwait to, uh, to Baghdad. But also he talks about how he, all his men survived 
uh, in that in that push, uh, but then they had one of the highest you know uh, rates of suicide afterwards. And him really? being that him, him being that commander, he he came to that realization and realized that, and uh, you know, I really, as a leader, where did I fail in that process? Um, having transitioned into life, and and uh, he's he's by the way, he's uh, also the executive director now for Mighty Oaks Foundation, so he really runs the organization for oh, us. That's awesome. And he's just an incredible guy, uh, great speaker, and yeah, hopefully you'll be able to have him on. Uh, the other book, um, uh, the path, the uh, truth about PTSD. Yeah. Um, I think we talked a little bit about, about that, but if anybody's trying to understand what PTSD is again, what it is and what it's not, that's what we tried to capture in this book. Alan West, a great friend of ours, one of our, our board members at Mighty Oaks, he wrote the forward in that. And, um, I think the big problem with post-traumatic stress is people just don't understand what, what it is. Yeah. And, and, uh, there's two kind of dynamics. One is that somebody gets this diagnosis and they feel like victimized, like they're broken or disordered and they don't feel like they feel like they label prevent them from moving forward and sometimes people embrace that that's the second part sometimes people embrace that title like almost like victimhood, as, a, as yeah. a badge of honor and a victimhood yeah. and, and victimhood is you know kind of exalted in this country right now and uh and it, yeah. it just it's running rampant right now yeah and this is a form of identity now you know yeah and and uh you know the veteran space just doesn't have a place for that and, yeah uh, i think uh you know 23 million veterans in america if if uh if veterans are, are victimized and put on a shelf, mm-hmm. I mean, our country's robbed of leaders and entrepreneurs and, uh, and strong people. So uh, I definitely am a spokesman against the victimhood of this PTSD thing being like something yep. that, a title that I want to claim. I talk a lot about PTSD, so people may have misunderstood and think like I'm pro-PTSD. Like, man, it's, if I broke my ankle, it would really be broken, right? I would be hurt, yeah. but uh, I could put a cast on it and eight weeks later, I'm up and running again. Yeah. And that's what this is. You know, it's, it's something we may deal with the rest of our life, but we'll deal with. Like, I still have, hard times. I still have vivid nightmares at times. Same I still way, have, yeah. but I don't respond the same way I used to because I've learned how to you know, overcome it. And the people I've, I've surrounded myself, my wife, my children, they, they know how to live with me and interact with me because as a family, we've learned how to deal with this, but I'm not, you know, sitting in a closet anymore. Yeah. I'm, I'm not uh, isolating myself anymore. I'm not, not talking about the hardships I have. I mean, I, even recently, man, my, my son, you know, third generation Marine, he's, he's on his way to Afghanistan right now. Um, not just because of my own experiences in Afghanistan, but what I deal with at Mighty Oaks, that's freaking hard for me. Like to oh, know yeah. my son's going there and, and uh, you know, I know it could happen. I have complete confidence in him and, and, and um, he's a strong young man. He has a strong faith. So I know what he sees and experiences is probably not going to rattle him like it did to me. But, you know, just knowing that as a father, that's been, that's been difficult for me. And having this, uh, this strength that me and my family's invested in, our, in ourselves, understanding this has been, a, you know, uh, really test ourselves of how we are able to overcome this. Yeah. Um, and, and so and it's, it's forever uh, a working problem set, right? And never, is, yeah. there's no end state to, to getting better because we all go through trauma periodically, whether you're in the military or outside the military. And so it's a method in which to understand what's happening, to diagnose it and kind of lead yourself on the right path. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I can't change what I, what happened in my past has happened. Yeah. I mean, uh, I can't change that, um, but I could change how, how I deal with it. I could change the choices I make moving forward. How do people uh, get in contact with uh, your social media and all the things that you have? What are some uh, of the outlets? So we, we, have a, we, we have a Facebook, Mighty Oaks, Mighty Oaks Warrior Programs, um, and definitely follow us on Facebook. We're able to keep you up to date with what we're doing. Um, same as Instagram. Uh, we just really started our, our Instagram push, but our main outlet has been, tw- has been Facebook. And then we have a, we do a weekly blog. We have our own, the Mighty Oak show as a podcast as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, love to have you on it. If oh, you that'd be awesome. On. Yeah. yeah. It'd be great to have it. you on. And, uh, and then we, um, we have a newsletter and uh, the blogs are, you know, really, we put them out every week and we 
try to give education and inspiration through those blogs. Um, and so, uh, definitely, definitely follow us on Facebook and, uh, keep up, keep up to date on through our newsletter. But we have about on Facebook, we have about 80,000 followers now. Oh, nice. We're ch- chasing your number. You guys yeah, that's are, pretty good. That's no, yeah. good. And so we have a, we have a pretty good pretty good social network, and uh, and everything we do is an outreach for support, mm-hmm. uh, because you know we we have a pretty big budget to do the work we do, so we're always looking for support. But uh, but it's also doubled up with uh, outreach for uh, for those who need the programming that we have. If somebody wanted to donate, how would they go? Is there a way to go about it? The the yeah, right on our Mighty Oaks website is a place yep. to donate. And again, uh, everything we do for our warriors is free, including our trips to bases. I'm going to Germany next week. Yep. Um, I was invited by the CG and the Sergeant Major of uh, Marine Forces Africa and Marine Forces Europe. Just example of some of the, the outreach programs we do and doing resiliency training and th- the 30 programs we have a year um, on our ranches. We have four ranches, by the way. We have a California ranch, Ohio, Texas, and Virginia. Wow. And so if you go to one of if you're listening and you end up going to one of those programs, you go on to those uh one of those places the ranches are absolutely incredible. The one we have in California is 25,000 acres wow. on a, in, the, in California wine country. We had one donor build about a $10 million facility there for us. And wow. uh, it's like staying in paradise when you go there. Um, it's absolutely incredible. So it's not like a fire base. No, okay. no. actually it kind of, it's kind of like a, it's, it's kind of positioned like a fob. It's on the, yeah. it's got a really good tactical position. Oh, nice. <laughs> like on the high ground. Yeah. One, yeah. So it's pretty cool. Uh, it wasn't intended to be that way, but it kind of feels that way. And then I one in Ohio. I love to talk about that one because it's the newest one. It's a 45-bed facility on the wildlife zoo in Ohio, Columbus, Ohio wow. Wildlife Zoo. So it's pretty cool because they have wh- white rhinos there. Wow. And so we get the kind of insider tour on the yeah. white rhino. We get to pet them and stuff. No one's jumped on one and rode one yet. but uh, <laughs> That's going to happen one day. It's going to happen, yeah. It, uh, hopefully it's not me. It gets us kicked out of there. But <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. yeah That's so. great. I mean, you guys, it's uh, – it's mightyoaksprograms.org to be able to go donate. Yeah, and then- you can donate there. You can apply there, and uh, and just you know tie in our social you know social stuff there. You get on a newsletter our newsletter there as well. Yeah, well, I, Chad, I appreciate you coming on the podcast, man. It's it's uh, great to hear your story, and I've heard great things, and I'm just completely impressed by you, the organization, and what you have going in this you know fulfilling this purpose. Uh, which is never fulfilled, right? It's not, yeah, you're just yeah. passing on, which is what we what we do at our uh, ripe old ages. And um, I just appreciate you coming on. I appreciate what you're doing for the veteran community and just for people in general. I mean, everybody needs to know this in education, uh, in advocacy, and then uh, and the people who are hearing this that need uh, help, you know where to go. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of resources out there, but um, if you need the help, the help's available. And then uh, you don't have to be um, alone in this uh, no. journey. You don't have to hide out and seclude yourself. Uh, like we communicated before, it's, it's okay to reach out uh, we're doing it. Yeah. I mean, you got a force recon guy and JSOC guy and, uh, and you got a, you know, SF Sergeant major telling you that it's okay. Yeah. Uh, it's okay. It's not, yeah. it's not that big of a deal. Yeah. And, we've uh, had, we've had everybody come through a program. We've had SEAL team, SEAL team six assaulters yep. come through. We've had, we've had active duty Fulbright colonels, active duty command sergeant majors come through all the way down to, you know, uh, 10 year privates, uh, <laughs> coming through. Awesome. I mean, uh, we've had everybody, everybody has come to the program, so no one's excluded. And, uh, if you need help, man, just reach out. Awesome. So. Hey, if, uh, you guys are here and listen to this podcast, I'm gonna try to convince Chad. We have the, the dojo getting set up, uh, March 1st. We'll have Fuji mats. We'll be out here and kitten the whole place out. Um, at least I'll create a home because I know you're a third degree black belt in jujitsu. I am. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I, I need to start rolling again. It's yeah. just good, good for your soul. And, um, it'd be cool to have you out and to do some things later on and have people hear the message and uh, yeah. we'll have a survival seminar as we have go rigs and coffee and, and just having you out would be a, a, a gift. So 
Yeah, man, I'm, I'm, you know, when I learned you guys were here and I'm excited, I'm excited to get part of what you guys are doing in any way, any way that, that I can. Awesome. So. Thank you, Chad. Thanks for, thanks for being on. Thank yeah. you. Thanks yeah. guys.